0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Evoking History. I am your host, to you today a special guest, Dr. Neary McCallion. How are you today?
1: I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thank you for being on the episode. Um, I like to start off these things by saying a little bit about my guests, and Dr. Battalion was kind enough to design the um banner and the logo for this podcast so I am eternally grateful for that so let's start off a little bit with about your background where are you originally from and and where did you get your degree
1: so where I'm from is a bit of a is a bit of a a complicated question Um, I am of Armenian descent Uh, I'm originally from San Francisco but if you ask me where my hometown is I depending on what depending on depending on the context in which I'm asked, I will either say Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or Sendai Japan and Philadelphia because that's where my family is from, Pittsburgh because that's where I live now. and Sendai because that's where I lived back in 2005 and sort of had this this uh, life-changing few months that, Really set the course for a hell of a lot, from uh, self-discovery to religious conversion to directions in historical research to uh, religion. Um, so, so that's so that's where that's 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 a little bit about my personal background. Now, uh, as an academic, I did my BA at Ursinus College outside of Philadelphia, and. Um, And then I had a couple of years of not really sure what to do, kind of being eaten up by anxiety over, oh my goodness, am I good enough to even do anything at the graduate level with history. And then I read an article by uh, Dick Smathers, who is now an emeritus professor at at Pitt, uh, that really impressed me in terms of showing the kind of courage that I felt like I wanted to cultivate and and model myself uh, as a scholar, and particularly as a scholar of Japan, talking about difficult things in Japanese history that need to be confronted. Uh, So I worked up the the nerve to apply, and somehow I got in and did my master's at Pitt and then did my PhD in history at Pitt. These were two separate programs. My master's is in Asian studies. And and then I was readmitted to Pitt. And um, I'd like to say that despite Pitt rather than because it, I finished my degree.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. How was that? What was that like transitioning from area studies into a Ph.D. history program?
1: It was difficult. It was difficult because the department was in a period of transition and um, the uh, foci of doing area studies as one's primary, you know, uh, uh, focus versus doing more broadly working as a historian, personal, uh, you know, regional uh, uh, expertise notwithstanding, the necessarily more broad uh, 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 perspective and training was a challenge. Um, I got through it. Uh, I'm grateful for that perspective. It's helped informed what I did at the time and what I've done with myself as a scholar since. Um, but it wasn't for me, ultimately. Like I, I, I could not, and I still cannot see myself doing that as a career because my, my investment, my uh, personal, my, you know, my interest, what gets me fired up, and people who know me on Twitter can attest to this, is very local history. Uh, be it Japanese or American, and uh, and so you know I went through it and I you know I did it because I had to I you know I, I got through the program and I taught myself how to how to how to talk in those very big picture terms, but you know when it comes down to it at heart I'm a scholar of northeastern Japan.
0: Yes. One of the reasons that I asked is because I did my master's in global history here at Marquette, but I almost went to the University of Michigan to do um, a master's of Middle Eastern studies. And I kind of wonder where I would be at if I had done that. I think it would have been very helpful for the language portion, if nothing else. But Mm -hmm. it's probably best that I have gone the route that I have. How did you first become interested in Japanese history?
1: Uh, that's that's also complicated um, but uh, some of my earliest uh, memories are of things Japanese I was, mm. as I said, I was born in San Francisco, my father uh, is a lifelong student of Aikido uh, Japanese martial art, Aikido and so some of my earliest memories are of watching my father training in Aikido in the, in the social hall that sits under the basement of it sits under the under the, the, the main worship hall of the Konko shrine in San Francisco, um, and uh, so right there I had my, my I had some of my earliest interaction both with Japanese martial arts language and but also with religion and now here I am uh, you know decades several decades later as a having a doctorate in Japanese history but also um, also having trained in some of the same martial arts and with a desire eventually this will take a while uh, to uh, enter the Shinto priesthood
0: oh wow that is a very lofty go I wish you the best of luck in achieving it
1: thank you very much it was <laughs> but that but the, the 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 origin like my first my first interaction my first contact with it was when I was very young like I I My father tells me that he was taking me before I can even remember.
0: Yes. It's sometimes funny how those interactions that you can't even remember shape us years and years later. Definitely. Um, So you mentioned Sendai and how that was a time of great personal growth and change. Um, If you want to speak to that, i open the door for you, Um, too. But what is it specifically about northeastern japan as opposed to the island as a whole that attracts you
1: so broadly obviously i you know i i i have i i have some i have some measure of familiarity with the rest of the archipelago uh, because you have to um right. and you know I, I i've toured i've toured a little bit of the rest of it but tohoku as it's called the northeast or rather in the is east saying to is in tokyo to hoku is north so the east north um but but what what attracts me in particular about the east north um there are a few things for one it's very beautiful geographically uh it's just it's rugged and beautiful and it's got lots of forest and and uh and beautiful rocky coastlines basically think think Oh, how, what can I compare it to? Um, if you can imagine West Virginia right next to the Pacific. Yeah. Okay. That kind of that kind of geography. Culturally, also, it's interesting to me because it's off the beaten path and it preserves older ways of doing things, older mores, traditions, etc., that the bigger cities like Tokyo and Osaka don't necessarily keep. Um, historically it interested me and this is what grabbed me long term and you know led into my, my grad school research because in the civil war of 1868 the northeast was the was the site of the, of the co- regional coalition that attempted to build their own alternative to the japanese empire and lost and some of the sort of uh, scorched earth tactics that, they, that the uh, Imperial Japanese Army is infamous for during the Second World War were first uh, used against the Northeast during the Civil War of 1868. But for some reason, the uh, English-speaking um, uh, academe... Uh, is only just starting to get some interest in it. I don't know why. Uh, it's just you'd think that a major turning point like that in Japanese and world history would merit some more attention and would merit being squarely dealt with as a civil war. But for some reason, the scholarship lags. So I'm trying to p- fill that gap as an independent scholar now. Wow, but that's, that's sort really, of the long and the short list.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. because you know, And I am by no means a scholar of Japanese history. But most of my knowledge of the Je- World War Two Japanese tactics and military um, – uh, well, if I could think of the term. But most of their military tactics seem to have come from the Russo's uh, Japanese war as opposed to from the Civil War. So that's really, really interesting to me. Yes,
1: Um you know the the broader the broader i guess strategic and sort of operational level stuff that they the mentality and approach that they had yes was was sharpened during the Russo-Japanese war but some of the how to call it um some of the more brutal uh um uh tactics of mass murder and uh, sure. mass punishment uh inflicting of mass suffering um was uh was first um, employed against the northeast mm-hmm. um also some of the some of the 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 ways in which land uh, land and, and and whole areas would be just uh rendered uh not only not only just, just devastated, but um, the psychological, the, the, the way that that was employed to psychologically break uh, the now subjugated enemy, um, some of, there was a lot of that that happened in the War of 1868 on the part of the nascent uh, Imperial Japanese Army. Uh, um, you know, It was to the point that the people in the northeast, particularly in the Aizu Basin um, in, uh, in, uh, in what's now Fukushima Prefecture, uh, believed that their land was so defiled by war, plunder, fire and then by decree the losers were not allowed to be buried so there was disease. They mm. believed there were some there who believed that their land had become so defiled that their gods had left them so that's why there oh, wow. were a surprising number of converts to Christianity in the Meiji period in the 1870s, 1880s because they, the mentality was we need to find some new gods. But um, yeah. So, so that's that's, that. that's I'm I'm less familiar I'm less intimately familiar with with the with, with the Imperial Army in the Second World War, but the sure. you know, even with what I have studied the parallels are very stark. And it's uh it's a strange irony also to consider that one of the units that was involved at in the massacres at Nanking um, was a regiment that was locally raised in Aizu. Mm. in that same in that same place a couple decades later um and much later than that it was veterans from izu that wound up being some of the first to come forward and say yeah we did this um so so it's interesting how history does that
0: it is um and i could spend an entire episode talking about that, but that's not what we're here for today. So I'm going to to, to move on. Although I would love to have you back on as you continue your research into this to discuss that more. By all means. But what brought us here today is you have a fiction book that is going to be published this year.
1: Yes. uh, Somehow my first book wound up being a fiction book. (laughs) I have a... I have a history, I have like my, my dissertation, it was supposed to be my first book, but this novel wound up uh, outrunning it, and here we are, it's about published. Yeah.
0: Do you have a firm date on when it will be?
1: I'm not allowed to develop that yet. Oh, okay. So I, oh, okay. You will definitely be able to buy it by Christmas, let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it, because I do want to get a copy. And that's going to be on balance of Seven Press, correct?
1: Yeah, out of, out of Texas.
0: Awesome. So, tell us a little bit about the the story and how your history training helped you develop it. So,
1: I'm a strong proponent of something I call baking kale into the brownies when it comes to sneaking history education into right into my writing, uh, into my non-academic, non, you know, uh, into my into my fiction writing. Um, you can tell someone to read a book and that's all fine and good. Some people will read it, but some people won't. Um, But if you, I find that if you sort of work it into um, fiction, if you kind of work weaving into the tapestry of a a story, uh, even if it's a fictional story, even if it's urban fantasy like this one, um, it sort of lingers in the back of people's minds. And then they, and this has happened many times with my work where people have come back to me after the fact and they've said naira you know i'm really not interested in history usually but the the way that you talk about it is so infectious and the names that you mentioned in this whatever story i had to look them up and i had no idea they were real oh my goodness um so it's you know especially you know in 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 this day and age with 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 uh uh history education being so sorely necessary and lacking, frankly, particularly in the United States, um, I find that historians really need to think very broadly in terms of what they can do. And they don't all have to do the same thing. I mean, we're not all the same people, and we don't all have the same tastes and proclivities. But what can... I, I would love it if more historians, academic and otherwise, could think about what can I do... To reach people, to reach more people, uh, overtly or you know, a little bit subversively, sort of woven into the background, um, with this education, so that so that they're hearing these names and thinking about these concepts and 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 learning something and and, and, and consciously or subconsciously becoming better equipped to deal with the present day. Um, so that's that's some of what mo- has motivated. And, and that's some of how I put history into, you know, weave history into my, into my fiction. Now, more specifically for this project, this is called, the book is called Grey Dawn. Um, it's named after a line in, and fans of the movie Gettysburg will recognize this. Um, it's named after a line in the song Kathleen Mavornin, um, Kathleen Kathleen, my morning. The gray dawn is breaking. There's that scene in the in the uh, in the film where uh, Longstreet is talking to um, uh, Armistead, and they overhear somebody in the Confederate encampment singing Kathleen, my Um and um, uh, so Grey Dawn comes from that, as does the name of the surname of one of the characters and the inspiration behind one of her tattoos. But you know uh, that's details. Um, so uh, so the story follows two women, in a way three women um, uh, if you count one of them twice. But uh, but uh, so so Chloe uh, Stanton. Um, is a uh, is is this, this uh, um, uh, 19th century abolitionist uh, from Philadelphia. She comes from this high society background. Uh, she's she's a, she's from a Quaker family, um, but she's from a Quaker family that ha- are pragmatists. They will bend the rules if it, if it's it's politically, uh, economically socially expedient. Um, And she gets to a point in watching the the political wrangling over the question of slavery in the antebellum period in the 1850s, she gets to a point where she's fed up. And she decides to take it upon herself to go out and start fighting back against the bounty hunters who are coming up to Philadelphia to hunt for fugitive slaves. She nearly gets herself killed in the process. But she meets a mysterious uh, a local woman uh, named Lee Hunter who um, saves her and tells her to go away and don't come back. Um, and, uh, uh, and then they cross paths again when Lee is hired by Chloe's mother to be Chloe's femme de chambre, her sort of personal maid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we discover that uh, Lee works for the secretly works for the Philadelphia uh, uh, Vigilance Committee, uh, which was a local, which was a real local committee um, that, uh, uh, that engaged in the work of the Underground Railroad in the area. They uh, helped uh, harbor um, people escaping from slavery, they took down information, offered medical care, housing, you know, food, etc., all the necessities, and helped get them onward, going further north, uh, on to, uh, you know, either New England or to uh, to Canada, where they couldn't be uh, pursued. Um, and um, so then Chloe also becomes involved in the vigilance committee, and along the way, she and and Lee uh, become lovers. Civil War rolls around. Chloe disguises herself as a man and joins the Union Army's 17th Pennsylvania Cavalry in order to go fight for abolition because things have entered a different political and military phase, and there's this chance to strike a death blow, and she wants to take it. So three days after the Battle of Gettysburg, and her regiment is one of the real regiments that was in Buford's division on the first day. Uh, three days after the Battle of Gettysburg at Williamsport she falls through a hole in space time and finds herself in the 21st century uh, and she hasn't served at her enlistment yet so she's still technically in the army and the army picks her up The local, the, she gets picked up by the police handed over to the National Guard um, and um, that's where we meet her because After six months of waiting for discharge papers from the modern army, she gets fed up and tries – she gets fed up, decks a military policeman, and tries to steal a Humvee, which she doesn't know how to drive. (laughs) Um, And so she's handed over to the civilian bureaucracy that in this world is meant to – the the civilian part of of the federal bureaucracy that's meant to deal with people who fall through space-time because this is a thing in that world. Um, and so she, because she's a liability, she's handed over to the civilian administration and the, the, um, the local office in Philadelphia, where she winds up the joint of the joint temporal integrity commission, uh, picks a, uh, another veteran, uh, who's an employee there to, uh, personally supervise her and acclimate her to the present. And she's, um, veteran of 17 years service in the modern army has been to iraq afghanistan syria um and she's a trans woman and um is trying to figure herself out you know as she's now in her second year at the commission um and her name is also lee hunter um Mm. and um and so Lee the twenty first century Lee and this uh, and and Chloe have to um, have to figure out why they are so familiar to each other.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, and also they bond over a shared experience at war and and eventually, you know, they they start to build a common vocabulary as Chloe learns about okay. There's this modern term called lesbian, and that's the term that's mine. Um, So they bond over some of these shared experiences as queer women, and uh, there may just be a happy ending.
0: Well, that sounds very fascinating, and and like I said, I look forward to getting a copy and reading through it. Um, I have questions, but I'm afraid that they would lead to spoilers, so I will not ask (laughs) specifically about the plot. Um, But you know in preparing for this episode when when I asked you to to be on you had sent me some articles that kind of show the real history behind some of what you're talking about how did you make the decision to set your story where you have
1: so part of it had to do with the fact that as a byproduct of my academic research into Japanese history of the 19th century I necessarily had to be do- had to be had to become a scholar of the American Civil War because the Japanese Civil War of 1868 was fought with surplus weaponry from the American Civil War, even including a random uh, or uh, before, I, before I go any further, is mild profanity allowed or no
0: sure. yeah, go Go right ahead,
1: a random ass Confederate ironclad. <laughs> Uh, a random-ass Confederate ironclad was also at the was also involved in the Japanese Civil War of 1868. So I had to become I had to educate myself. I had to work some of it into my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sort of left me with uh, questions. Um, that left me with points of curiosity about uh, places that some of the equipment that I learned I knew from Japan you now. Places that they had been used, and context that they came from, also some of the people who were on who were who were present for both wars. Uh, William Barker Cushing, some Gettysburg fans may know the name Cushing because of his brother Alonzo, who recently received the Medal of Honor. Um, uh, you know the. there's 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 overlaps so i i had to become a scholar of the american civil war to a point and and that left me with these questions that i felt like a a a in the context of fiction i could really explore i could really play with so personally also you know my roots as i said my roots are in in philadelphia and i live in pittsburgh so i've kind of got the two ends of the state this very long ass state covered um but uh some of the things that I've learned about um, Pennsylvania history and the way that it's very, you know, and, and the, the different, the different, uh, the different, you know, good and, and bad uh, aspects of, of, of um, some of its, uh, some of its uh, uh, history of the 19th century um, have also gotten my attention um, and I wanted to explore those too. So mm-hmm. it seemed like the, it seemed like the context of a story where I could also fudge with time and have a 19th century woman in the 21st century, uh, was a, was a good, was a good way of, uh, was a good sort of setup, um, for playing with all those different elements and seeing where it took me. Um, both, I should add, um. It isn't just the American Civil War that's relevant to this plot. The Japanese Civil War is also relevant oh. to this plot. Um, Lee, the 21st century Lee, um, her mother's ancestors were samurai who fought for the House of Date in northern Japan. And you know, followers, loyal followers of my Twitter will know that I talk about them quite often. They were the focus of my of my thesis. Um, But Lee's maternal ancestors fought for the house of Date, uh, in, in the North during the civil war. And that's relevant to the plot for reasons I won't get into because spoilers, right. Um, but tying it all together, um, in this way took a good long, you know, it's been now three years that I've been working on this project in different forms. I had two short story iterations of it that ran one in uh, 2018, one last year, um, uh, so it's sort of the the what, what what what's about to come out later this year is the result of evolution, um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so so it's a it's a it's 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 become over that very long period of time, um, you know this uh, this uh, very I guess sort of um, hybrid uh, kind of you know thread from here, thread from here, thread from here uh, right. thing uh, that I've, I've, I've put together uh, into, this, into this shape. And I'm hoping that, you know, the people who know their military, like sort of ultimately what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reach a bunch of different audiences at the same time, and I'm not going to perfectly reach all of them, but I hope if I can, that I can at least get to some of them. You know, I hope I can spread education on real history, particularly on the history of the... Um, of the underground railroad in philadelphia i hope i can you know i I hope i can spread that i hope i can also uh improve people's appreciation of the fact that queer people have existed throughout history Mm -hmm. uh that we are not new um i hope that i can also broaden people's understanding of just how terrible it was in central pennsylvania for the uh Army of the of of, of the uh, our our mutual friend Trey. What, what does he call it? The slaveholders' rebellion? Yeah,
0: that's what he calls it. Um, is. The uh, you know just
1: how just how terrible it was in central Pennsylvania, particularly for the local black population, that this that the that the army of the uh, of these uh, slaveholding rebels came north. Um, you know, I, I'd like to do that uh, uh, because. You know, that's the part of these are the parts of Pennsylvania history and Civil War history that often, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you've got the sort of the very shallow uh, high school understanding of, um, of, uh, uh, of of the Civil War, you miss, um, you know, the, the even the even the films that people have watched in this day and age, you know, the, the, the mass kidnapping of. The black population of Chambersburg and Mercersburg doesn't come up in, in the film Gettysburg, uh, but that came before the first day, and you know Sam Elliott with his mustache in the, in the cupola of the seminary. Um, so I want to these very serious, very um, these very serious, very you know, tending to be forgotten episodes of the civil war history and pre-civil war history in pennsylvania i want to i want to broaden knowledge of them so very broadly that's one audience i want to reach i want to reach also because i have the i have over twitter seen interest from um uh, current or former military people uh i'd like to reach them with a story about queer people because right now there's this uh unfortunate backlash particularly against trans folks in the military Um, I'd like to reach trans folks and, you know, LGBTQ folks more broadly with a fictional tale um, of, you know, based on on some very real queer people uh, in uh, Civil War history um, and give them this example, this fictional example of, you know, more, uh, you know, heroes to, to aspire to, um, you know, I'm also writing, I, th- I guess, what I want to see, because growing up, you don't see, uh, you know, I, I didn't see uh, very much uh, positive coverage of LGBTQ folks in fiction at all. I mean, we tend to be uh, victims or uh, jokes, uh, but here I'm writing, you know, I've got this cisgender uh, lesbian character from the 1860s, trans lesbian character from the, from the modern day and you know each one of them in their own way uh, is complex and brave and sometimes a little dumb um and uh, and uh, they've got their silly moments and they've got their romantic moments and it's like okay you know like that's it, it may not seem like very much to somebody who uh, who is is not queer but uh even the smallest bit of positive representation matters when 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 your identity and your uh, rights uh, to exist uh, in uh, in the public sphere are under attack the way they are in this country today. Um, So, yeah, I, I worry that I've rambled a little bit here, but I hope I've made some kind of sense. Like, I'm trying to reach a very broad of cluster of different audiences, and if I get at least some of each, I think I will be satisfied.
0: No, I I think you made a lot of sense there. Now, you did cover a lot of ground that I want to go back and and touch on some individually, but just the, you know, to your point that you made of baking a lot of kale into the cake, um, you have certainly done that with all these different audiences that you're trying to reach and these different historical strands that you're pulling into it, and it sounds like you've written these characters you know, in a novel way, I say sarcastically because you're writing <laughs> about them like they're real people, which, you yes. know, is part of that missing representation. Yes. Yes. But let's start there, I think, because sure. one of the the things you sent me is a Daily Beast article entitled The Amazing Story of Little Al Kashir, a transgender Civil War hero yes. by Turtle Bunbury. Uh, would you like to speak to that a little?
1: Certainly. Um, so this gets into some of the supporting cast in Grey Dawn. Um, when we get a glimpse of Chloe's time in the, in the 17th Pennsylvania, we meet a couple of comrades in arms of hers, bunkmates, who were in, in the same company, um, who are trans men. And um, I have based them loosely on both Albert Cashier himself, but also on some real trans men friends of mine that I know, that were some of my other inspirations, um, uh, and yeah, my uh, I was motivated, I think, uh, particularly by some of the frankly disheartening um, coverage that I have seen uh, in some of the some of the even the scholarly work um, that erases. The existence of Civil War trans men. There were plenty of them. Albert Cashier was one of them. He lived his entire, you know, from the from the date of his enlistment all the way until until uh, until he was outed near the end of his life. He lived his entire life as Albert Cashier. Um, and I wanted to honor that. Um, you know, he doesn't appear. Albert Cashier himself does not appear in this story. So it's a, it's a don't. <laughs> a, uh i hope the listeners don't misunderstand what i'm saying is that through the characters that i've have been inspired by him i wanted to uh honor the i wanted to 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 recognize and honor the lives of the real trans men of the 19th century or what we would now call trans men because i understand the language has changed
0: you know the. um uh and to your point, I mean the article points out that there were at least that we know of 250 yes. of these trans men who served yeah. in the Civil War.
1: Yes, and 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 I also, you know, uh, the uh, uh, the the flip side of that also uh, because I see them collapsed into the category of women soldiers. Quote You can't see me, but I'm doing the I'm doing the air quotes. The air quotes. Yes. Um, uh, because they tend to be collapsed into the category of women soldiers, and because m- one of my main characters is a cisgender lesbian, uh, butch cisgender lesbian who has to pretend to be a man in order to not be kicked out of her unit, um, I wanted to, through having these support members of the supporting cast, I, I wanted to further underline that there's a difference, you know, that obviously there's a difference, that some of these people, some of the, some of the people who, you know, The term is assigned female at birth Uh, some of the people who were who enlisted in 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 civil war armies were in fact cisgender women and you know that's one category but then you have uh, these trans masculine you know trans male uh, people and that's another category and they are not the same
0: well, yeah. And, um, you sure. know, uh, we very rarely talk about these people in our history. The only yes. one that e- immediately comes to mind is Mary Read, the, the pirate from the 17th century. Yes. And even that is, you know, talked about in, in some very problematic ways a lot of times.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so so it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my I'm trying to do my part, you know, again, getting the real working the real history education in that way. Um, and how I've cultivated uh, their names are, are Caldwell and Nate. Uh, you know the two Chloes, two uh, 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 transmasculine bunkmates who uh, you know, teach her how to pass and you know, cover her ass uh, during the uh, during some of the particularly uh, uh, fierce fighting in the lead up to uh, to the fighting at Gettysburg. They you know they go to they're at Chancellorsville. Um, there's, uh, you know, I, I have a little bit where, uh, she's, she's telling this story of, you know, the early, the early service and how the divisional and core level command, uh, that was, uh, you know, over the, over the, the, the horse soldiers kind of was it kind of sucked at the beginning. Um, uh, you know, I, I kind of I'll take them through all of that and, um, you know, I, I won't go and go again, I won't go into too right. much work as spoilers, but. Sure. But uh, I, again, I, want to, I, wanted to, I wanted to
0: recognize
1: and honor these people for who they were. Well, I'm certainly glad that you
0: have, and pointed, you know, me, it be sharing that article, because I had no idea that there was a, a sizable population. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that when you hear it, oh, yeah, that makes sense, but it was just something that I was not truly cognitively aware of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So let's move on to another one of the, you know, historical threads that you're weaving into this, the Underground Railroad safe houses in Philadelphia.
1: Yes. Rather important in the first half of the book. Yeah. So this is one of those things where I am certain that, um, you know, folks who are particularly versed in black history... Uh, we'll go we'll shrug and they'll go yeah obviously um my but but i find that you know having not grown up in philadelphia but having had family roots in philadelphia uh as an armenian um you know i I had some familiarity with the with with philadelphia history but just black history in general my education you know as as a ethnic armenian but also as a kid who came through at least some American public school. My education on black history has been sadly lacking, and I've been trying to make up for that. Um but that was one of the things that particularly captivated me about the history of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia was that there were, you know let me back up a little bit. There's a podcast called Uncivil that was recommended to me some time ago and it reinterprets some of these assumptions and reconsidered some of these assumptions on particularly the history of the American Civil War and all the different things that it threads that it's connected to before then and since then and through the present through a uh, black perspective. And the thing that I was, you know, the thing that sort of motivated me to go do my own research into this uh, was this recurring, the recurring theme that you, know, you have to understand that it's not that its not that people were—you know—emancipation was granted from on high. Um, it's that black people were freeing themselves from the beginning and fighting for themselves from the beginning. Um, and that's part of what you know along the way uh, uh, is some of the humility that that my characters have to learn is that rather than try and come in and be the white savior. You know, what can I do to be an ally in a meaningful and 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 non obstructive way uh, is something they have to learn, and they have to learn to follow the direction and the lead of the black folk doing the work. And chief among them in Philadelphia in this particular cause was this gentleman William Still, um, who appears as a member of the supporting cast.
0: Very cool so he is a a real abolitionist figure
1: he was he was a real abolitionist figure of the 19th century a pretty important one as far as philadelphia went he kept copious records of the people that he housed and got for you know got on their way further north um the thing that particularly blew me away the more i studied about his history was the fact that one of the two houses that is known to have he is known to have lived in and have harbored have, have, have protected people in um, was literally a block away from a street I walked up and down over and over for many years. It was in eye shot and I had no idea. And I just feel <laughs> a little bit I feel a little bit like just just chagrined like ah. Well.
0: I mean, I, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself because I really think that that's one of the you know the things that made the underground railroad as successful as it was was its ability to blend into the background and not be so noticeable to prying eyes. That's a,
1: uh, that's a fair point, exactly. But I mean, as a as a modern person who prided who prided and I think still you know try thinks she can you know pride herself on on her local historical knowledge. Sure. That was a pretty big gap right there. It was right there, just off the South Street. <laughs> yeah. oh, my goodness. I walked by there all the time, like, ugh. But, you know, now I know it, and when I go back next time, I'll be able to visit it. Exactly,
0: exactly. There's a lot of really great work being done still on the Underground Railroad. I know that one of the initiatives that we've been doing here in Milwaukee mm-hmm. um, through the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach is attempting mm-hmm. to map Underground Railroad sites in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to be to it yet, but the last time I was in Cincinnati, they have an Underground Railroad Museum there that I would love to go to and look around and see what exhibits they have.
1: Oh, I'll I'll, I'll make a note of that. I'd be curious to see that.
0: Yeah, and I I think that that is one of the good things about what you're doing, amongst many others, is this pulling into the local, because I know that there are several local uh, lacuna within my own historical knowledge, Mm -hmm. in that a lot of the classes that we take are are at such a you know ten thousand feet level looking down. Yes. either They're at the global or the national and the big picture. That a lot of times these little local snapshots mm-hmm. are lost to us as scholars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what that's what bothered me so much, um, you know, during my during my education and you know during my research in grad school was that. You know, people kept saying, yeah, well, what about the world historical perspective? What about the world historical perspective? I don't – that's what I wanted to say. I don't care. That's that's fine. But, like, you're missing this stuff. You're, you're missing this local stuff. It has an influence on the world historical perspective. But you yeah, have to get yeah.
0: down in the dirt first. Yeah. Sometimes to know the forest, you have to know the tree. You can't always just be looking at the forest and ignoring the trees. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So – so that's, you know, that, that, that this is something that this is something that's always been a part of what I do, and I think it always will be, um, you know, I, but regarding regarding William Still, the other thing that the other thing that frankly blew me away was that in the wake of the John Brown raid, it turned out that the survivors of the raiding party were evacuated through the Underground Railroad and came through the care of William Still
0: oh wow no i had no idea
1: yeah they they the and 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 uh, you know not to get not to get spoilery but this comes up in the book
0: um i would hope I, so because that's pretty juicy
1: i couldn't resist i couldn't <laughs> yeah. resist um but john brown's including his one surviving son um came through the care of william still via the underground railroad and uh were spirited to freedom right uh you know not you know freedom, but like spirited sure. to safety. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing, the other thing about uh, William Still's work that surprised me, and I really I should have I should have guessed, but you know I you know was still a was still a, a, a bit of a surprise was the fact that Harriet Tubman worked with him. Oh wow! Uh, more than once.
0: Um, I know the Smithsonian Magazine article that you sent me talked about him being second only to Harriet Tubman and his importance to the efforts. Yes, yes.
1: Um, But we know Harriet Tubman's work and less his work. Um, And that's a shame because, you know, as a descendant of of genocide survivors, I really, really admire – efforts that people will take under incredibly adverse conditions to preserve knowledge, to preserve Amen. memory. And that was a big part of what he did. He didn't just save lives, he, he took down information, and he helped reunite people after after the war. So, you know, and and, and it, you know, he didn't stop there. I, uh, he was also involved in uh, desegregating public transit in Philadelphia, and, and a lot of other stuff, too. So, you know, I, I, I should hope that you know, he would. I hope that he will become better known, and that maybe I'll do some small part to help that. And for that matter, um, I would love it if more people knew about Harriet Tubman's involvement in the Cumbie River Raid in South Carolina. But that's another story.
0: Yes, without a doubt. Um, I really do hope that the efforts to get her onto some form of monument you know, some form of the dollar bill or the $20 bill or what have you really land so that more people become, um, historically aware of her.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I would, I would love to see that. I was actually, I'm I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, well, I'll, I'll hold on to that. You, let me put it this way. Um, she comes up in the book too, but spoilers.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) It's a tease. Go read the book if you want to see how Harriet yes. Tubman is in. Yes. Yes.
1: All
0: right. So the other thing that you had mentioned uh, mm. briefly, actually, there's two other things you had mentioned briefly that I would like to get you to expand sure. on a little sure. further, if you if you don't mind. Sure. One is you mentioned that uh, you put your characters into the 17th Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, so if you, uh, other than the fact that you decided to place your story here geographically, mm-hmm. um, why was that important? Why was that decision made?
1: So in all honesty, I chose the number at random and then did the research when I when I wrote my very first iteration of this as a short story.
0: Sometimes it bees that way. I mean, that's my yeah, I,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it gets it gets a little bit. Uh, so as I did. As I did more... As I poked around more into the history of the real 17th Pennsylvania... You know, first thing I found was... Holy crap, they were at Gettysburg! They were in Buford's division! Ah! So I, yeah. I, I can't look at... I can't look at the movie portrayals in the same way again... Because it's like, oh, those are my guys! Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> uh, but beyond that... Why the 17th Pennsylvania? Well, um, it was late enough in the war it was not like late war, but it was, it wasn't like they formed in 1861. Um, it was formed late enough in the war that I felt like there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of, uh, of, of, there could be a little bit of wiggle room for somebody like Chloe to kind of surreptitiously slip into the unit, uh, was one thing, um, you know, it's not like the beginning where everybody's sort of, you know, being pouted with fanfare, like, oh, on forward to Richmond, forward to Richmond, um, and sort of very publicly uh, enlisting uh, during that during that uh, that cra- uh, uh, craze, for lack of a better term, yeah. at the beginning, but. You know, they organized in 1862 in Harrisburg, and they were composed of companies raised across the central and eastern portions of the state. Um, so, you know, and this comes up in the novel when she tries to sneak in. The, the enlisting officer asks her, "You know, wasn't there a wasn't there a, a company? It, it, one of our companies is from Philadelphia. If You're from Philadelphia. Why didn't you enlist there?" And And uh, she says something like, uh, well, they were full. They couldn't take me. Right. Um, So she sort of surreptitiously enters the unit there in Harrisburg right before it goes to war. Um, Beyond that, it turned out that the 17th Pennsylvania Company F was convenient because there are photos of its troopers that I have found. Um, so I have it's given me a, a, a frighteningly clear picture into the average uh, clothing and gear um, that somebody in that specific company would have carried. Um, the regimental history is available on archive.org. The snark is dripping. Like it, <laughs> there's, there's humor in there that's like, it, oh, God, what was... Actually... I am allowed to uh, I am allowed to read very short excerpts, Ooh. so I'm going to do a character. I'm gonna I'm going to read just a couple of sentences here in Chloe's character voice. This is something awesome. I'm looking forward to. This is something I'm looking forward to when it releases because I I I have character voices for these different characters uh, that I've, I've developed. Sweet. So. Yeah. Uh, So she quotes the regimental historian because she's in the 21st century now and she's read the history. Um, So she says in in Chapter 7, Much later I learned that our regimental historian himself had said long after the war, to be driven in was to be branded as a coward, to be captured was equivalent to dismissal, and to be killed was a joke. He was right. We got a sound thrashing over and over. But then the strangest thing happened as 1863 opened. The army's leadership changed again and again, and so did the leadership of the cavalry arm. To quote our historian H.P. Moyer again, we finally had in command live generals. <laughs> I love that. Uh, the, the the italics in my text are actually the italics in the original text.
0: <laughs> That's even better. Like, Live
1: generals.
0: <laughs> uh, that is amazing.
1: Uh, so it wound up it wound up being it wound up being convenient. The other thing, and this gets a little bit spooky, um, but fittingly for 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 a unit that was at Gettysburg. Um, so, when Chloe enlisted, enlists in this unit, she enlists under an alias, and she can't think of anything better, so she goes with her deadbeat father's name. Um, and it turns out there was a corporal by that name in that company that disappeared about a month after I have her disappearing.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, talk oh, about kismet. Wow. Yeah,
1: I know. Corporal William Shaw. Killed by accident is what the roster says. I think it was like August 5th, 1863 at Brandy Station. Um, but I just, I it was one of those things. It was one of those things, and I, I, I apparently have a habit of doing this across all of my writing. I, friends of mine who keep up with my writing will will say, "Nairi, you have this habit of writing behind your own back." Um, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but sometimes these things happen. So that's so that's some of that's some of why why the 17th Pennsylvania. It seemed like a it seemed also like a good unit to get uh, a really ground level, you know, mud on the boots kind of kind of perspective on the Gettysburg campaign because we have our image we have our very polished sanitized image of you know Buford riding the rescue of the town and choosing the battlefield on the first day. Um, but reading reading uh, uh, a recent work on it, um, you know, particularly stuff by Wittenberg, um, you know, the uh, and good God, he chose a good title, "The Devil's to Pay." <laughs> yes. Eric J. Wittenberg, "The Devil's to Pay," John Buford at Gettysburg. <laughs> um, reading that and reading Moyer's regimental history of the 17th, um, I felt like. I could, I could, I could not only, I could not only have like way out of the proverbial tip of the spear uh, that perspective, uh, you know, through having Chloe in this unit, but also tying into that what I now know about the what the rebels did when they came up into southern Pennsylvania and how they rounded up the local black population and marched them south, you know. To have the 17th at the front of the advance, be first to come into Gettysburg and talk to the locals and hear from them that, hey, these rebels have already been through here once and they took our black neighbors away. Yeah. Rather than start with, oh, the rebels are going, you know, they're having this march. Oh, we think they're heading to Washington. We need to get in their way. Rather than the big picture stuff like that, I chose to focus on the very ground level. Yeah, the rebels are coming in this direction, they may sweep east and south toward Philadelphia and D.C., but on a very immediate note, these people's neighbors have been hauled off into slavery. Holy cow.
0: Yeah, that is, um, gives it a, a much more somber, in a lot of ways, tenor, because I think it's easy, especially in the this day of ICE raids and, you know, similar things. That component is going to be a, a major touchstone, I think, for some readers.
1: Yes, yes, uh, I, I hope so. Um, I'll uh, here. I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll read you another. I'll read you another couple of sentences after they've after Chloe and, and Caldwell uh, are have heard have heard this and they've talked to some of the locals and they're kind of standing there trying to like reeling in shock, trying to process this. And, uh, one way or another, there's only one thing to do. I said to Caldwell, gesturing down the road where, in the slowly setting sun, we could barely make out the rebel campfires in the direction of Cashtown. And what's that? Kill them. I said. Kill them all. Wow. Then, without another word, we rejoined the company and cover under the barricade on the Mummersburg Road, set to cleaning carbines, and waited. Before us, the rebel host, the vanguard of slavery and wrong. Behind us, little Gettysburg. But beyond, the hallowed halls of Harrisburg, the fields of Lancaster, and the spires and rivers of old Philadelphia. And here, our division, alone against the invaders. For the moment, we held the high ground. The sun set. The next day was Thursday, the first of July.
0: Man, that's, that's goosebump-inducing. Very good. Incredibly good. Right? Yeah. Thank
1: you yeah I, I'm not aware of any fictional or you know, I know of some you know nonfiction obviously that, that starts the narrative the Gettysburg narrative from there but I'm not aware of any fictional narrative that sets the stage the day before yeah you know like comes in with the cavalry and sort of gets that ground level gut churning mm-hmm. shock Um, factor it's sort of very it's sort of very sanitized Oh, brother against brother kind of
0: kind of belly um and i don't veneer of the lost cause over the time exactly
1: exactly exactly. and i I just having been through that part of the state a couple times now it also just breaks my heart to see how local people from that area flying the flag the army of northern Mm -hmm. Virginia like do you guys not like I I have this I have this this sort of old Armenian lady kind of curse that I mutter to myself as we're, <laughs> as I see these flags when we're driving through the, the part of the state I kind of go oh I hope your Unionist ancestors haunt your unworthy ass.
0: <laughs> it is very shocking. I mean you know I grew up in the South. I was born in Kentucky, especially on the western end, which to to my shame attempted to secede and, and join the confederacy from mm-hmm. the state of kentucky
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but it has always shocked me as i've gone to the door like i can remember going to maine for a wedding and seeing people flying the confederate flag in maine and i was like what in the yeah, holy exactly. hell <laughs> maine <So. laughs> for goodness sakes yeah uh, anyway yeah. that is a whole another conversation
1: yeah exactly but but that you know that some of some of that some of that very very frontline ground level uh, perspective I, I, I felt like was very well served by the 17th Pennsylvania specifically. So I didn't wind up changing the
0: number to another one. It just was very you know it, it,
1: that arbitrary choice at the beginning wound up uh, wound up lasting.
0: No, and it was a very fortuitous one. It sounds like. Yeah. I will have one final question uh, about your novel. Uh, I have several others I could ask, but I want to be cognizant of your time. You mentioned that your character in the 20th century, who has the same name as the the 19th century character. Yes. She was a combat veteran. How much research did you do on our combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan?
1: A great deal. (sighs) I'll start. I'll start from there. Um, okay. Well, on the, on, so for one thing, there's a little bit of my personal experience written into the, written into her perspective. I was not a soldier, of course, mm-hmm. but I was in Lebanon for six years, um, half in the 90s, half in the early aughts, and I saw from the sort of the periphery of the region um, the. Second and third order effects of the U.S. Yeah. military's operations in the region, um, and some of eventually the um, indirect sort of shoring up of uh, regional um, regional uh, 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 ties that the U.S. engaged in, because some of the equipment that I saw the Lebanese military using started to change, started to become. I started to see more American equipment show up. Um, So I have that personal perspective sort of worked into that. But beyond that, I am a bit of a military nerd uh, as far as the modern military goes. A lot of what I write fiction-wise involves in some way, shape, or form the modern U.S. military. Um, So I have sort of a long, you know, I have like years and years of accreted information that I've sort of built up. Uh, to work from but um the other part of it is that i'm interested in unit lineages and particularly in unit lineages of units that can trace their history way back so lee uh this this character who shares a name with this 19th century woman um her uh unit second battalion 14th infantry 14th Infantry Regiment was at Gettysburg. Um, very specifically, that regiment of then U.S. Regular uh, Infantry was at Gettysburg. I think in the peach orchard. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, you know that approaching it from that angle of sort of tying modern military operations and, and units to historical iterations of the same. Um, Uh, filled in a filled in some of the gaps I read memoirs was another was something that I did um specifically for her division so the second battalion 14th infantry is part of the 10th mountain division and so I read a couple of memoirs by 10th mountain division soldiers who were in Afghanistan um I have also read um mostly online um this, is a, this, this gets into some of the allied militaries, but because Lee's experience in Syria um, was the impetus for her to choose to leave the army and transition because she had enough, um, I had to go educate myself on the factions that until late last year the U.S. had been supporting, um, particularly the women's militia, the Kurdish
0: women's uh, militia, yes.
1: the, the uh, YPJ. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on a very positive note, that's, that's the ideology, the feminist, the Kurdish feminist ideology is important to my plot because that's what gives Lee the tools, the sort of, you know, mental framework uh, that she needs to figure out how am I going to transition, get out of the army, figure out what I'm going to do. Um, and she winds up going with the, 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 the Kurdish, uh, the model that the Kurdish uh, uh, militia w- uh, women use is what she uh, kind of adopts as her own, where they say, a country can't be free until its women are free. Um, so she says, I started with myself.
0: Okay. Uh, That's good.
1: Uh, but. Yeah. So memoirs by 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 modern, uh, you know, recent either still serving or recently out uh, soldiers, uh, preferably in that particular division. Uh, my own experience uh, uh, living in the region during the, during these wars. Uh, my online research into the Kurdish women's militia. Um, also just poking around different uh, different uh, resources online. Um, you know, either official military stuff or um, uh, other other references that sort of compile uh, terminology and um, uh, other things. I'm trying to. I've had to. I've had to. I've had to. Edu- I've had to learn this whole other professional. Well, I can't say I'm fluent in it, but I've yeah. had to. At least develop a passing understanding of this whole other professional language, so that I can con- that, so that I can convincingly write this former soldier. Right. Um, so it's what? kind of it's kind of been layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Uh, and if you you know in 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 Lee's dialogue itself, because the book is in first person, it's divided between the two of them. Um, in Lee's dialogue itself, and I, I hope this comes across that. Not only does she talk like a Philadelphian, but she also talks like a soldier.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that is a, a very smart way to go about it, is looking at all those memoirs. Is that, that is one thing that I noticed that came out, especially the initial stages of both the Afghanistan and Iraq campaigns, is that there were a lot of memoirs that were published. Yes. Uh, and. So I commend you for that, because that, you know, uh, and I had read some of them, but I hadn't even thought of that as a resource for a project like this.
1: Yes, obviously I'm not basing it on their experiences, sure, no, but totally. in order to in order to develop an appreciation for being an American soldier in the modern day Army, but also being at, you know, and where possible, if I could find uh, people who were from that particular division, finding perspectives from the 10th Mountain in particular uh sort of filled in the gaps um and um uh if i had to recommend if i had to recommend a couple that have particularly stuck with me um i forget the title of one but this was this wasn't the and the the other one wasn't 10th mountain but it was it was a it was uh uh, from the very early stages of the Iraq War, the the title was Chasing Ghosts, mm. um, and uh, you know the perspective of an of a of an infantry officer, uh, in very low ranking. I think he was a first lieutenant um, in the early stages of the war, trying to accomplish something, but then finding that the whole finding out the whole reason why they had all been sent there in the first place was made up. And sort of dealing with that on the ground and trying to build something that would last past his deployment. Um, There was also, uh, you know, apart from memoirs, I'm grateful for the fact that um, I've made friends with veterans online, um, the uh, Hell of a Way to Die um, uh, community on Discord, uh, which is this... uh, community of people who are listeners of, of this leftist veteran podcast called Hell of a way to die uh, have been very gracious in answering some you know particularly detailed technical questions uh, yeah. you know so that I can so that I can more believably write not only a veteran in general but a person who used to be in the infantry mm-hmm. in particular um, so like what kind of gear how many magazines, um, yeah. What is standard procedure for this, this, and this, sort of some of the more nitty-gritty information I was able to actually get one-on-one for people personally.
0: Well, if the research that you put into this project is an indication, and I believe it is, that this is going to be a fantastic read. And I know I've said that like eight times so far, but I really do believe it.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. I have, a, I have a bibliography at the end. Oh, um, awesome just say i have a bibliography at the end for people who want to read more and see some of where i got my some of where i got my my, my information um and uh your podcast is on there and Outlaw uh, history podcast is on there and Uncivil is on there and you know some of these memoirs and uh, the i'm honored to be included and so on. Oh, you're welcome i'm i'm glad to i am glad to call you a friend and a colleague
0: and I am with you as well. I have a a question out of left field. You are also an artist, and I've seen some of your photography work as well as the digital art projects that you've done, um, commissioned as logos for the the various podcasts that I do. Do, Does any of your art appear in the book?
1: Yes, it does. Uh, I was very fortunate that um, my publisher was gracious enough to not shoot down the idea out of hand um, and you know we're, we're still working out what's going to appear in the book but uh, one way or another my own art will in fact appear in uh, in Gradon. Uh some of it will be pencil some of it will be all digital uh, but it will there will be multiple I think you know at least four or five different pieces that are going to go up, and then connected to it um, through my publisher's uh, uh, website, Uh, there will be certain uh, items of merch available with related in-universe designs that I'm going to be doing uh, for people who uh, particularly want to snag. Um, I won't say what, but uh, uh, the history nerds will be happy. Let's put it that way.
0: Yes. well one thing that I definitely hope you have is insignias and patches um, because those things are often and a very easy thing to collect because they don't take up a whole lot of space
1: yes yes well there that, that may very let me put it this way that may very well be in that may very well be involved <laughs> there may be some other things too
0: sure definitely well I think that we will wrap things up there uh, yes. thank you for coming on this was a fantastic conversation and I'm really looking forward to this book seeing print thank you, Um very- I would love to have you come on again and talk about other things if you are open to that. I
1: would I would welcome that opportunity.
0: Um, let us close by having you tell people where they can find you online.
1: Okay, so I am available on or you can reach me rather on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, um, sponsors, and WordPress at Riverside Wings. R I V E R S I D E W I N G S. I am on Instagram at nyri bakalian n y r i b i b a k k a l i a n. Some of my travel photography is on there. Um, you know, that may be of interest to some folks, particularly you know wanting to see a glimpse of Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, uh, but Riverside Wings is where most of my presence is, uh, including including Patreon.
0: Okay, thank you Al. And with your permission, I'll just put links to that in the uh, show notes so that people can find out without having to jot down the, the specific spellings make. It By all means. Thank you very much. You're very welcome and thank you for being on and thank everyone for listening to us here on the Evoking history podcast.